Hello and welcome to the Blockchain and Us, where pioneers and thought leaders talk about their journey in blockchain technology, crypto assets, and the token economy. And I'm your host, Manuel Staggers. This episode is brought to you by Crypto Storage. Crypto Storage offers a proprietary solution to enable professional storage of crypto assets. The storage is secure both physically and digitally on the highest grade hardware security modules with detailed configuration possibilities for individual based access control. To learn more, visit www.cryptostorage.ch. My guest today is Lucius Meiser. Lucius is a computer scientist and very early Bitcoin adopter and the co-founder and now board member of the Bitcoin Association Switzerland. He is also an entrepreneur and investor in several startups and the founder of Meister Economics, which focuses on education and consulting at the intersection of economics and computer science. And now to the interview. Hi, Lucius, and many thanks for taking time today. Hi, Manuel. Nice to be here. Lucius, we spoke um, almost two years ago, I think, about um, fintech, when I made a film about fintech in Switzerland. And you spoke mainly about your view from the Bitcoin angle. In, in these two years, quite a lot has happened. So which are the major changes that you have observed? So the most dramatic development was the whole ICO wave. So we've seen lots and lots of ICOs. At some point in time, more than a thousand ICOs were running concurrently. And this is now coming to an end. So there will be, in my view, a professionalization of the ICO market, which means that uh, firms have to actually offer something. Today, an ICO is essentially a donation. And uh, if the, the, the founders are crooks, they can, run, they can run away with the money and the investors cannot do anything. And uh, this obviously is not sustainable. So... What needs to be done is we need to create equity on the blockchain. Uh, but for that, the regulation is not quite ready. How many of these ICOs came out of Switzerland? A lot. I don't know how many. But uh, Switzerland is one, of the, is, is one of the first destinations to go to when you do an ICO. Mm -hmm. Because I remember last time we spoke, it was this whole discussion. Is Switzerland even a good business location for fintech and for crypto companies at all? And since then, I think also there quite a few things have improved. Yes. So... We had, so Ethereum did his, it's very early ICO here in Switzerland with the foundation model, which was also used, for example, by Tezos, where it backfired a little because one of the drawbacks of the foundation model is that you have to actually be present in Switzerland. So Swiss law says a foundation needs to be governed by people who live here. So if someone from the United States or anywhere else comes here and they want to use the foundation model, they need to use someone who is here if they don't relocate here themselves. And in that case, they they uh, appointed Johann Gevers and then they had a dispute with him, which is now resolved, fortunately. But this was uh, this had, has led to class action lawsuits that are still pending. And this is one of the risks. And uh, other ICO models... Uh, are not structured uh, around foundations. They are just issuing tokens for money, but they are not attaching any promise to it. So that's also risky. And in my view, a ticking time bomb. So there will be disappointment in the future. And uh, the important part is to 
to evolve to the next step. Mm -hmm. And Switzerland is trying to give investors, I think, legal certainty, but also companies who want to do an ICO. So, you know, maybe they're making some steps in the right direction. Yes, there's the FINMA guidelines, with, which helped a lot. Uh, I think it was the first financial market authority in the world that created such clear guidelines. If you look at the German guidelines, which were issued a little later, they say more or less the same, but in a much more complicated manner. So the, the Swiss guidelines, they're understandable by me, but the German guidelines, they are referring to paragraphs and whatever, and I don't have a clue what they're actually saying. So I think the Swiss have a very good uh, tradition also of making legal statement understandable to computer scientists like me. So you don't need a lawyer to know what matters and what you need to do. And there's also uh, a task force by the uh, federal government that is looking into how to regulate everything and what regulatory... So it's not about how to regulate it, it's about what steps need to be taken to enable uh, certain blockchain use cases like equity on the blockchain. And uh, at the same time, uh, uh, Liechtenstein is also stepping ahead. So they are... Uh, creating a blockchain law to allow entrepreneurs to issue actual equity on the blockchain and hopefully also to trade it. So this is, I think, these are the two main obstacles. First, the issuance of equity on the blockchain and then to actually trade it because both is heavily regulated. Lutzer, since when have you worked with cryptocurrencies? Uh, so I first learned about Bitcoin in, in early 2011. And then I uh, bought my first Bitcoin a little later, I think in March 2011 or so. Mm -hmm. From these very early beginnings of, you know, buying your own Bitcoin, um, how did you make, you know, this progression into shaping the legislation? So at one point in time, a member of parliament said, the Federal Council needs to investigate the risks of Bitcoin. And then I said, this is very one-sided. So I went to a friend who was leading the parliamentary group of digital sustainability at the time. And I said to him, we need to issue a counter statement. Then uh, one motion came out that said, the federal council should also look at the opportunities of Bitcoin. And these both uh, is uh, resulted then in the federal council's report on Bitcoin, which was quite early but quite new, also very neutral. So it, it, uh, but it, it also provided some groundwork where others could base their legal opinions on. Mm -hmm. And this is something that is also very specific to Switzerland, that, that because the Swiss law is quite principles-based, it's not only the lawmakers that makes the law, it's also the judges and the scholars. So if a professor says, that's how the law should be uh, understood, this can have an impact on what is, what is actually practiced and what's, what is possible. Mm -hmm. And here we see a very interesting development this year. So there's been uh, three papers, uh, two by a professor and, and uh, one by uh, Luca Miller and uh, one of his lawyers that came out uh, yesterday or so. And they all strongly went in the direction of saying we should not take the word Wertpapier, that's a term for security, literally. It should, there shouldn't be a papier, a paper in it. So it should be possible to have this security paper without paper. And they argue that with uh, what, what Luca Miller calls functional equivalence. 
that they said we should look at the function and not the literal meaning of these words. And and this is one way where you can effectively change the legal situation without adjusting the laws themselves just by saying that's uh, that's how they are actually meant. Mm -hmm. How does it work to to create these regulations? So so there are these different levels. So there's the the scholarly interpretation. Yes, but how do how do how does this interpretation flow into the actual regulation then that is applied in the market? So when a government agency tries to apply the regulation and is uncertain, it looks up the literature and looks what did the scholars say how this should be applied, and that's how it is uh, how these scholarly opinions can shape what is actually happening and what is possible, and also they often provide new ideas of. Uh, how uh, can things be uh, understood that that uh, to enable certain things? So, and this is in the past few months uh, that have uh, I think a lot has been enabled through that way. But there's also on the lawmakers front is is a lot going on. So there's, for example, one proposal that says uh, bitcoins should be extractable in case of a bankruptcy like uh, physical property. I saw a paper that you wrote about that. Yes, I wrote a paper about that. And there's actually a law in the making that codifies this and makes this, this is the advantage when it actually is explicitly stated in the law. You, you can be certain about it. It's not just an interpretation, but it also takes longer and is, lo is less flexible. So this, this, there's a trade-off. Mm -hmm. you, you come to all of this from entrepreneurship. Yes, so you started your first company. When was that? In 2007. In 2007. Yes. And that was uh, a cloud storage, right? Yes, an encrypted cloud storage. Mm -hmm. And then how did uh, how did you get what what happened between 2007 and 2011 when you got into Bitcoin? So a lot. So uh, we sold that uh, cloud storage company, and I got into Bitcoin. I co-founded Bitcoin Association Switzerland. I uh, uh, I also did a second master's in economics. How did it happen that, that you co-founded uh, the Bitcoin Association in Switzerland? So we sat together and said uh, something needs to be done. We need an association like that. because So, so the early Bitcoiners, the handful of early yes, Bitcoiners yes, at ETH. Yeah, so this was actually quite interesting. The first Bitcoin meetups in Zurich. So if you look at who participated in there, it's, it's like a who is who of what. So that there was uh, there maybe seven uh, to, uh, that met and there was uh, Mike Hearn or Stefan Thomas or Peter Wille or uh, Christian Decker. So lots of people that are now very influential in the crypto scene. And you said, this isn't going right. We have to create an association. So actually, this was uh, uh, Stefan Greiner who said, we need an association, we need to have a public face, and the president should be a Swiss guy and not a German guy like me. That's what he said. So <laughs> so uh, we said, okay, I'll be the president. But yeah, it, it was not my initiative, actually. But what was the goal of the association? I mean, what was the realization? Why, why so was this necessary? It was... We want to provide Bitcoin with a public face so that if a journalist wants, wants to write about Bitcoin, he knew who to ask. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
in the following months, I actually uh, had to redact quite a few articles. So the journalists, they wrote something about Bitcoin because they had to, but they knew they actually had uh, not much of a clue about it. So they sent their articles to me and I, I said, this is wrong or this should be... So I corrected technical details. So and nowadays, this doesn't happen as often anymore because I think there are many more experts but in early days, I think this was quite important in, in also just getting things right and, and not uh, distributing things. So there are still a few things that are often repeated, but wrong. For example, in the legal literature, um, lawyers often write bitcoins are data or cryptocurrencies are uh, data. Mm-hmm. And this is wrong. Because bitcoins are not data, they cannot. Be, uh, Bitcoin cannot be represented by uh, zeros of zeros and ones. It's the blockchain that consists of data, but the blockchain only says where a specific Bitcoin is. It doesn't contain the Bitcoin itself. So, what is it then, if not data? It's it's a fictive asset. It's something that's. Uh, so it's it's quite abstract. It's like, for example, a copyright is also something that we invented. It's an asset you can buy and sell, but it's not something that exists in nature. And like, uh, so one philosophical question is, what happens if we delete all the copies of the Bitcoin blockchain? Do the Bitcoins cease to exist? And I would say no. So, for ex- so if you compare it to copyright, I think if you burn all the books, all the copies of a specific book, the copyright doesn't vanish. It still exists. It's maybe useless, but the copyright still exists even if all the books have been destroyed. And similarly, I would say a Bitcoin still exists even if you could erase all the copies of the Bitcoin blockchain. So if somebody deleted the whole blockchain, Bitcoins would still exist? Yes, it would not be very useful anymore because it it would be very, very hard to prove that you actually owned some of these Bitcoins. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's it's like uh, another abstract thing we have is the soul. So when you die, people say your soul still exists. And the same, uh, I think, applies to Bitcoin. Bitcoin or all these cryptocurrencies, they are just something, an abstract idea of an asset. And the blockchain is just there to tell where they are. Or who can control them, but the blockchain doesn't actually contain them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's quite fascinating. Did you, when in the early meetups, were those the kinds of discussions that that you had? No, not at all. So <laughs> we had, uh, I think, much more specific uh, problems uh, and issues. To actually, the very first assembly of the Bitcoin Association is uh, available on YouTube. It was recorded. Mm-hmm. And one of the discussion points already back then was the difficulty of getting a bank account. So there was a lot of about practical problems. Mm-hmm. When you when you got into in touch with the white paper and and Bitcoin and maybe then the whole concept of the blockchain, how important for you was that philosophy or that ideology? F- to me, at first, I think the it. I'm more like uh, something, uh, a practical thinker. So I found it fascinating that someone created something, a digital peer-to-peer currency that actually seemed to work. Because this is an old problem. And as a computer scientist with a specialization in distributed system, I've been thinking about this problem myself and I haven't found a solution. So I was 
aware of the difficulty of the problem. And then I saw this solution and uh, uh, it looked like it worked. And it does so far. Let's go back from, from today to 2013. I wasn't in the space back then and, and there weren't that many people really who have seen how the whole thing developed into what it is today. So I'm just wondering what, what were those first steps and what did this kind of, this kind of ecosystem, what did, it, what did it look like back then? So it was uh, much smaller, obviously. Uh, Niklas from Bitcoin Swiss was also there at the assembly. And one of the first projects we did back then is uh, clearing, clarifying the legal status uh, of Bitcoin regarding VAT. It was unclear back then whether you have to charge VAT when selling Bitcoins. Mm -hmm. And uh, which is important to Niklas because that's what he was yes, doing that's in his, his business. business. So, uh, and fortunately, we had a positive answer from the federal uh, tax authorities, and they said uh, it's not uh, VAT taxable. Mm -hmm. So basically, that's that's exactly before you said you needed a face, right, for Bitcoin and some kind of expert body with the association. So let's say a question like this, right? Is this even how is this taxable and how how does how is it taxable with VAT? So you you then went to the tax authorities and said, look, here's a thing called Bitcoin. People are interested in trading it. How should we deal with this tax wise, or how did this work? So. Uh, my wife is an expert on VAT law, so uh, <laughs> she knew the right experts and, and one of the authors of a very influential VAT book, so we say he's the VAT Pope in Switzerland, and we asked for his advice, and he helped us drafting a letter for, for the tax authorities, and then after many months, we finally got an answer. So this is not the fastest process, but uh, at least we got a good answer. Mm -hmm. And then also the first companies, I guess, started existing. The, the first um, crypto companies yes, or blockchain I companies. I think Bitcoin Swiss was founded in 2013. Bitty was also very early. Uh, Alexis Roussel is uh, the founder of Bitty. He was also for quite a while on the board of uh, the Bitcoin Association. And uh, other companies... Uh, uh, stopped existing so some of them uh, disappeared again but uh, but now I think Bitcoin Swiss is now the largest Bitcoin company in Switzerland Let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsors Crypto Storage is part of the Crypto Finance Group providing services for professional financial intermediaries and therefore bridging the gap between traditional markets and blockchain technology the storage solution offered by Crypto Storage raises market standards by introducing a new security paradigm, which features two layers of dedicated and redundant hardware devices. This setup allows for a dedicated, independent and highly flexible multi-signature framework. All transactions can be independently reviewed and approved on a dedicated tamper-proof hardware. The hardware security module, the tamper-proof signing devices, and the tailored software solution are all developed by leading Swiss providers with vast experience in finance and IT security. To learn more, visit www.cryptostorage.ch. We just spoke about some companies that started existing. Niklas, I interviewed him as well, and, and um, not in, in our interview, but in other interviews, he talked about how all of this was kind of a brotherhood at the beginning. How, how did you experience that? Yes, yes, this was very much the case. I, I think it was very similar in the earliest day of the internet. 
before the so-called eternal September. I don't know if you are familiar with the term. So in the early days of the internet, uh, people discuss on the Usenet. And there, every September, the new students came to the universities and were for the first time exposed to the internet and started discussing there. And they didn't understand how to properly discuss online. So uh, the the niveau uh, went way down. And it took a while after September to restore it and to bring everyone up to speed and to teach them the netiquette, how to talk to others, not to insult them, not to troll and so on. But at some point in time, so many new people came into the internet that it wasn't possible anymore to restore the old high level of discussion. And this is called the eternal September. So because it felt like always September with so many new people going, coming in without understanding how to have a good discussion. And I think this is uh, something that also happened a little in the Bitcoin scene, like we had uh, an eternal September where so many new people came in that you stopped knowing everyone. And it's so it was... And, and uh, so it's not a family anymore. In the beginning, it's like a small conspiracy against the world and you have something completely new and, and you want to shape the world. And today, it, there's a lot also of commercial interest. Also, if you look at the num- number of associations in Switzerland, so there's Bitcoin Association, which is uh, the earliest, and we still operate like uh, back then. So we are not profit-oriented. We organize events. We don't... Uh, charge uh, entry fees or anything we don't make any money with these events and what we care about is spreading knowledge and uh, giving people information and allowing them to give a platform for the open discussion and this is in stark contrast to the countless conferences so there are many many conferences out there that are just about making money so they charge 2000 Swiss francs or so to participate and they sometimes even charge the startups that uh, want to present there so it it's there's if there's a lot of money around it attracts people that want to uh, make money and this I think this has changed a lot it's not uh, I I think uh, in an ideal world uh you should meet because you're interested in a topic and you should organize a gathering because you like the topic and not because you think that's an opportunity for making money. And this has changed a little. So I think that the old things still exist, but you have to look more carefully for them. For them. Mm-hmm. I mean, is it that it's maybe become a little bit too successful too quickly for its own good almost? Uh, yes, I think we, we are in a hype, at which is now uh, collapsing. So the, uh, it's, we, the Bitcoin exchange rate went down from 20,000 to now a little above six, and it could go down further. I think this is a healthy development, where uh, also for the ICO, so as I guess many tokens, the value of many tokens will go uh, back to zero when people realize that there's not much behind or when projects don't don't get completed. Uh, you can also see that, so if there's quite a few tokens that try to be next Ethereum, like the, the one blockchain for all the smart contracts. And in the long run, only one or maybe two of them can win. That means all the others have to go to, base, to, to basically zero. And that means that a lot of money will be burned and lost. Mm-hmm. Do you invest in crypto companies? Sometimes, here? but I never participated in an ICO. I know you you invest in some um, fintech 
companies. When you do that, what what do you look at? So it should be here in Zurich or at least in Switzerland because I want to be able to meet the founders regularly, to, to stay in touch with them. I want to understand the legal environment they operate in. So it should be based in Switzerland. And uh, I want to know... so. I want to understand the business idea. I want to know the team. Uh, so as the team is very important, it should be a balanced team of, uh, no one should be working part-time, for example. I would never invest in a startup where people are working part-time. And then the idea should be good. So it should be something that where I see a potential. And if this all comes together, uh, uh, I might invest. Mm-hmm. And um, how do you evaluate if the team has this entrepreneurial fire or not. I mean, you mentioned just with the part-time, that's maybe one indicator that they're not fully, that they haven't fully bought in into their own idea. But uh, what else? Well, it's hard to tell. It's just, it's a gut feeling. And that's also why it is important to physically meet them and not just have uh, Skype calls because that doesn't, somehow do, doesn't work for me. Mm-hmm. Do you ask them questions when you meet or? Uh, we just talk. It's, uh, I, I don't know. It's. Uh, I think I don't have a very elaborate uh, process. Is this why maybe you're not investing in ICOs? Because it's maybe, so yeah, maybe it doesn't fit my... Also, I think they are all overrated. So even for those companies that have maybe a good idea, let's say Tesos has a good idea, it's completely out of proportion to give them 200 million. Even they themselves said initially, we, in our moonshot scenario, we need at most 20 million and then we can do really everything. Mm. And now they got 10 times that amount. And they, they are not 10 times faster now. I think they are actually slower because they have too much money. And a whole host of problems that yes, came yes. with mm-hmm. So is that your prediction that most of these ICOs will fail and there will just be one blockchain? No, maybe not one, but maybe three or four. I think uh, we don't we don't need ten different internets, and likewise, we don't need too many different blockchains. There can be different blockchains for different purposes, but there's a, there's also a network effect. So if every token and every share is on the Ethereum blockchain, they are tradable directly on the blockchain against each other. And this is uh, hard to bridge if they are on different blockchains. There are methods to do that, but it's always a little cumbersome. So I think there's a strong tendency for one blockchain to capture all the market for a particular use case. And for, I think the Bitcoin blockchain wins for digital gold because Bitcoin is the oldest. And if you want digital gold, you need something that's old because only through age there's uh, trust. And that's why Bitcoin will always dominate the use case of digital gold unless they screw up completely. But it's still open who will win for uh, payments and for uh, equity on the blockchain and for smart contracts. I think for smart contracts and equity on the blockchain, Ethereum is in a pole position. But if it's still possible that uh, other blockchains overtake them because there it's not so much about age and tradition. It's more about uh, having the best platform for the use case. When you had your own company, you know, now when you compare maybe with uh, those companies you invest in, what kind of experiences are valuable to you that you made yourself? I'm not sure. So I think it's valuable to 
go through this process yourself so you know how, how it feels to do everything yourself, for example, because uh, as a startup, you cannot spend a lot on, on lawyers and, and uh, web design or whatever. So you have to do everything yourself. And this is very valuable. And I still like to do things myself and get deeply involved and to look at actually look at smart contracts and not just read the documentation because I want to actually know what they are doing. And I think this deep interest also in the detail also helps a little with evaluating companies today because in the end, uh, a presentation can say anything. And you, if you want to have an actual judgment, you, you need to look at what they're actually doing. What do you spend most of your time with today? I mean, you had your company, you sold it, you're investing quite a bit, but what is your main focus? Uh, at the moment, it's. Uh, I think I spend most time with my family at home. So I'm not focused. So there's many things I do, but it's, unfortunately, there is nothing that has 100% focus. And this is something I miss. So I think it's uh, very good if you want to be very productive to focus your resources 100% on saying something but today I'm sometimes I do uh, look at legal things publish a legal paper then I, I'm look, uh, discussing with different startups what they should do or, or uh, it's it's I'm involved in many things and this uh, is also distraction and leads to many context switches and I would actually wish to have fewer things that I'm involved in What I'm also doing is a PhD in finance where I want to create economic simulations, which is something I could spend all day alone on my computer doing, uh, but I actually uh, rarely get to it. Mm -hmm. Did you always want to found your own company? Not really. It was just one option of many. I think this is a very, if when you finish your studies, It's a very interesting point in time because then you are completely free and you have so many options. And uh, and I think that you should choose carefully. And for example, you should not do a PhD because this is not something that helps you in the long run. Mm -hmm. You should try to do something in the real world. And if you are skilled in something and can do something, you should try to make use of that skill and maybe create a company. And so this is one of the main secrets of companies that they can, you reap the whole benefit of your talent. So if you're, if, if a programmer is 10 times better than another programmer in a big company, he doesn't earn 10 times as much. Even at Google, that's not possible. Maybe he earns twice as much as his colleague. But if you have your own company, you have a direct impact on the value you also get for yourself and you can also you can listen to your gut feeling i think this is the secret of the agility of startups if if you have the exactly same team within a large company even if it's an innovative company like or people think it's innovative like facebook or google then you have to have actually apply for a budget for a project and say i want to do this or that and then maybe it gets approved and then you work on it and after three weeks you feel actually i should change it a little but then it's not what was approved anymore so you wait within the little uh, within the large company until you have uh, data to back up your gut feeling that you should change it and then it takes three months until you have actually changed the project but in, if you are only accountable to yourself you can change it every day if you want and this is 
innovation is about experimentation also with the business model and, and being able to change it quickly. And this gets lost in large companies. Mm-hmm. And this gets lost very quickly. Even a company of 50 or 100 employees is not really agile anymore. And that's why innovation often comes from the smallest companies. And that's also, by the way, and now we are back to regulation, while why regulation kills innovation. Because if innovation comes from the small companies, then and all uh, regulation tends to burden companies with fixed costs, it means that the, f- the small companies suffer the most. And for example, today in Switzerland, it's almost impossible to create a an exchange for security tokens because the law assumes a huge organization which with millions, many millions of capital and good lawyers and everything. And that means no innovation is is possible anymore with regards to the market structure. And uh, But other countries are affected too. And I hope we can somehow get around this or, or, or maybe tear down some of the regulation in order to enable innovation again, in, in particular to allow small companies to create something new and try out new ideas without being burdened with all these requirements that are today in the law. I mean, you said before there will be a shakeout with all the ICOs, there will be consolidation. Maybe, you know, incumbents will also get into the space, in the, maybe in the medium term, what's on the horizon there for you? I think we will see the race of the value investor on the blockchain. Today, the IC investors, they are gamblers. They, they want a 10x return within two months. They speculate on the sentiment. They don't speculate on the fundamentals. But in the long run, Warren Buffett wins. So, And this will happen on the blockchain as well. So the gamblers, they will uh, gamble against each other and slowly lose their money. But the value investors who actually invest where they see the, where there's actual value behind it, they will win in the long run. And they, obviously, they don't touch a traditional ICO with a utility token with no, that's not hard to evaluate. So they want to invest into security tokens. And there's actually huge potential for that. If you look at the Swiss stock market in the 80s, we had 2,500 listed stocks and bonds. Today, it's half as much. So, and so, and this is completely astonishing. So why do we have half as many listed stocks and bonds on the stock market today than 30 years ago? And that's because of the regulation. It's not attractive to get listed anymore. But there would actually be a huge benefit of being listed. And here is where the blockchain can step in. It allows a company to be publicly traded without being listed on stock market. So we, we can get the benefits of the listing without all the burdens of the listing on a traditional market. And this, uh, the, the, the liquidity premium is said to be about 25%. So that's the premium, how much a share of a typical small, medium company could get uh, more valuable uh, just by being liquid and by being on the stock market. And so this means we have the technology to make every company in the world 25% more valuable. And this is the potential of the blockchain in finance. Mm. Wow. Interesting. Uh, You mentioned uh, Warren Buffett before. Do you have um, any role models in in your work? So, (laughs) I think uh, Warren Buffett is, of course, a good role model in finance because he's someone who 
who doesn't is not interested in the short term fluctuations because I think in the short term you cannot you cannot create value in the short term. Short term speculators they chase value of each other, and one gains, the other loses. But in the long run, the right allocation of capital can actually create value, and that's what we should be after. So and so other role models might be uh, Richard Feynman which was a fa famous scientist and always had an open, curious mind. And I think this is very important to, to be open and to, to look at ideas and uh, dismiss them or like them. And this is something that uh, often gets lost in large and, and, and bureaucratic structures. And this is also one of the reasons why people should be... Uh, so I've become a big fan of decentralization. I think not only from a technical point of view also if from a political point of view it's very important to have local accountability and to think locally and not to try to mix everything and to make one a global mishmash of everything so i think this is one of the secrets also of of, of the blockchain and this technology that it allows small local interactions and peer-to-peer -peer transactions that bypass the whole uh, financial system and all the, mo the regulatory monoculture we live in. I mean, it's really fascinating. We could continue talking, but I, I know uh, you have to go. It's, really, it's always really interesting to talk to you and I hope we can do this uh, again in the future. So I really appreciate your taking time today. Thank you, Manu. Thanks so much for joining us today. More info on our guests and our sponsors is in the show notes of this episode and on the podcast website, theblockchainandus.com. To help people find this podcast, it's important that you download, subscribe, and give it a top rating and review on iTunes or on the podcast platform of your choice. I'm Manuel Staggers, and I thank you very much for listening. <laughs>